Hey listeners, it's Andy, and I'm here to see if you've tried Audible yet. With an incredible selection of audiobooks, it is the perfect way to dive deeper into the stories upon which some of your favorite films are based. Audible members get a credit every month to redeem on any audiobook they like, plus access to a huge plus catalog of podcasts, originals, and more. Just imagine listening to the books that inspired movies like The Bourne Identity, Moneyball, or sci-fi classics like Dune. The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text thenextreel to 500-500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. I think of all the trailers, Andrew, I think the trailer for Nemesis may be the most easy to forgive. Really? Why is that? Well, I feel like we got a lot of big images. The The final, I mean, they give up the huge central big visual effect again of the Enterprise and the Scimitar running into each other. They That, that is, I think that... Well, we know, we know studio heads. That's their thing. Show them. That's their thing. That's their thing. It makes me super mad. But the other moments that we that we are given in the trailer, there's a lot. It's cut well. I think we get the the secret of the Picard party twinship. Uh, I'm a little bit torn on that since so much of the movie about is is about the the pairing of characters, and and so I you know I'm okay with that. It, it there's still a huge curiosity. Why is this happening? I th- I think they they keep me curious. There are some terrific visuals. It's well cut. It's uh, I. I love the final um, line. I think they could have ended the trailer there. Set a course for Earth. Kill everything. I think that is a great line to end a trailer. And then they screw it up by showing the ship collision. But everything else, I think, is pretty good. Well, they do reveal a lot of moments. And, uh, you know, I, I was a little torn on some of it. I mean, we we see some of the, the, the moments where uh, Troy is kind of getting mentally raped. I didn't think that was too much of a problem because it's not like, you know, a key visual where you're like, what? You know, uh, but but yeah. it was like. And and absent context, do we know their rapes in the trailer? I mean, if you did. We, uh, no, I agree. I agree. Okay. The thing that I guess bugged me the most, which is a weird moment, but it's when Riker and the Viceroy are fighting. And we actually see uh, Riker kind of kick the Viceroy and the Viceroy falls to his death. I'm like, that's kind of the, you know, climactic moment of their battle. We shouldn't, I mean, seeing their fight is fine, but seeing that moment, I was a little disappointed with. No, you know, that's a really good point because of the, and, and again, we didn't have this context in the trailer alone, but it is number two to number two. Yeah. And that is, you know, just as the ships, that's a big, you know, CG effect, the big visual effect. This is the huge stunt effect, you know, and, and they just gave it up. It was almost like the only big, because we also see their little, uh, the the scorpion ship escape through the, the window. I feel like the only thing we never yeah. really saw in this, as far as a, a moment of something cool, like visually happening in a, in a, in an action moment is when the Argo uh, is when the Argo goes off the cliff, yep. cliff and, and jumps into the, uh, the ship waiting for it. That was like the only yep. thing we don't see. They really show us a lot. Uh, it's a fun trailer though. I mean, I, I felt like it had a lot of energy. It definitely felt like a more modern trailer, like the way that they cut it and the way that yeah. they kind of feel the need now to just throw everything in there. But, uh, you know, I don't know. I guess I forgave it. I, I am coming at this, you know, after it, it's it's been a number of years since we saw 
insurrection. I know that the mood was down uh, compared to, you know, after insurrection, nobody was really into this, but I was ready for track. I was ready for another track. And I can only imagine like putting myself in, in that space in 2002 uh, that, that this would have bowled me over. I was a little, uh, yeah, I mean, I agree. And I think for anyone who at least was a Trek fan, the, the Romulan logo that pops up uh, with the title, I mean, that's a, that's a fantastic you know, version of the Romulan logo that you don't even see in the film. But I was like, that's like a really gorgeous uh, visual of that logo. And I would love to have seen that somewhere in this movie, but oh well. I, I was a little perplexed uh, yeah. by the the stock eyeball close-ups that we had throughout. It was a, a strange choice that they felt they needed to insert into this. Yeah, yeah. It feels like some stuff that was... Um yeah, cut, right? I mean, there it seems like there was probably more eyeball in the film that didn't make it into the final print. Maybe. I have to believe that. I don't know. I have to believe I felt that. like that was just like it, them going to their stock image library. Let's get some eyeball close-ups. Yeah. You know, just to... We need an eyeball to go over this line. Yeah, or to go over the yeah. Paramount logo. That was a weird way to yeah. show the Paramount logo. The eye blinks and the Paramount logo's in it. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, maybe they just ever changed. They were toying with changing the Paramount logo to just an, an extreme close up of an eyeball. Just the eyeball. Oh, that's thinking. <laughs> our eyes reflect our lives, don't they? I can see as well as you can. I can feel everything you feel. In fact, I can exactly what you feel he said he's a mirror for me I need to know where the hell he came from the same blood runs through our veins it was as if part of me had been stolen look in the mirror see yourself I'm a mirror for you as well be so vain. This is the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies tonight on the show. Legendary action editor Stuart Baird dons the job person writing crop to direct the final next gen big screen romp, 2002's Star Trek Nemesis. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you've enjoyed this show and are interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. You'll get to join in the back channel conversations on Slack, listen to the members-only weekend show, and get better chances of being a part of our listeners' choice episodes. In fact, we have one coming up, uh, I believe it's right after this series, so just about a month away. Uh, head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel. Andy, uh, we were talking, you and me, uh, in private channels, as we're known known to do, and you almost told me, I feel like I, I asked you, I, I, I almost, <laughs> nay, begged you to tell me what you thought of this movie as you watched it last week, and then I, I thought better of it. Better Angels intervened, and I said, wait, 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 no, don't say anything. I want you to spoil me. I, want, I, I don't want any spoilers. I want to know on the show, what did you think of Star Trek Nemesis? This time, 
So here's the thing that I've I've come to realize as I I watch through all these Star Trek movies. It's already too much preamble. It's, I know you it, now. I can already tell I've lost. It's 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 an interesting franchise in that I have been uh, I'd say equally frustrated with some of the films as much as I have been thrilled by them. I, I think my memory of of these films uh, it fluctuates. I think it was a lot more um, black and white, and I'm finding a lot more gray areas now as I kind of go through these. Like Star Trek Five, I was not expecting to really enjoy that one again, um, and this film really fell in that. But this film was like always my least favorite Star Trek film, and as I watched it, I'm like, what was it about this film that turned me off so much? I can't quite place my finger on it. I don't know if it was it was just so dark and I wasn't expecting it to be so dark, um, but that certainly didn't bother me this time. I ended up liking this film quite a bit, actually, and I, I don't want to do this, but I feel like if I rewatched this in First Contact, there's even a possibility this might end up coming out on top, which I was definitely not expecting. Um, and I don't know if I'm 100% accurate on that, but I ended up really enjoying some of the stuff going on here. Now, as I was saying earlier, this franchise has as many problems as it does brilliant moments. And this film certainly has its share of problems. Um, but I had problems with First Contact, too. So there I sit. That's a stunning relief for me. <laughs> It is stunning. I told you last time that I remember I have much better memories of this film, certainly than Insurrection, right? And I, I really do. I, I've watched this probably the least of the series. I regret that because I had a great time watching this movie this time. And and not only that, I feel like it fills in 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 terms of what this film represents in the in the overall next generation narrative and in in Star Trek canon. It fills in a lot of interesting holes that uh, that and, and answers some questions through you know Easter egg and and ship designs and just fun things uh, that make this film great. I also think I, I like the darkness. I love the use of light. I love the, uh, uh, the way uh, Picard and Hardy uh, or, and, and Shinzon play off of one another. I think it's really great. There, Yeah, there's some stuff that's kind of silly. But, but overall, I, I had a great time. And I will tell you, confirmed, uh, I actually do like this better than First Contact after, after this particular viewing and maybe it's just that we're watching that watching all these films more closely than we normally would but but i had a a notably better time watching this film i i didn't have stretches of boredom like i did uh, with everything that happened on earth in first contact and i wasn't as frustrated with the enemy as i was with the borg queen and just kind of the lack of energy that the borg really brought to that film yeah, this film, and I—I I mean, I've watched a lot of uh, Star Trek um, shows, but a lot of stuff never sticks in my head. And the Romulans—that was kind of always a race that I never really knew who they were or what kind of they were. It's like Klingons and Vulcans, and everybody else, and that was kind of the way things were in my head. And I could never really tell you, like, I would never have been able to tell you who the Romulans were. Um, and even after having seen this film and the next film, it's like, it's, it's a race, but I don't really know anything about them. And this film, I think kind of helps clear some of that up. I do think that's a little bit of a problem is I feel like 
they really jump into the Romulan side of things without giving me a ton of extra info. I don't know how much it was needed, but I do think that for people who are coming into this movie not really knowing much about it, it would have really felt like, oh, this is made for Star Trek fans. That's kind of how it comes across. Um, that being said, I I think that there is some interesting stuff happening with the Romulans and the introduction of the Remans. I guess they were mentioned in an episode of something in the in the original series. Is that right? But they were they've yeah. never been seen until now. That's right. They've never been seen until now. And and it, um, uh, you know, so we we didn't really understand kind of where they where they were, what they were, and even in in I think it was in Kirk's. Uh, there's a there's like a. Uh, map, a star map we see in one of the original series episodes where Romulus is marked and and there's another planet that's clearly tied to it, but it's not called Remus uh, at right. that point. It's like not even named officially yet. So it, it was a, it took a long, it was a long road to get here in the canon. Uh, but the Romulans are, you know, just to dive into a little bit of Star Trek nerdery, the Romulans are the the cousins of Vulcans, right? And, you know, they are they're the biological cousins of Vulcans, as they're said to be. And they, uh, if you if you go all the way back in in Star Trek lore, uh, there was the the time of awakening on Vulcan and Surak, the one of the early. Early, early, early um, leaders, you know, was was teaching these reforms during what they call the time of awakening, and the Romulans were a faction essentially that broke off and rejected his teachings. And so, you know, you look at the three major forces of the original series and the next gen, where we had the the Vulcans and the Klingons and the Romulans. I've always looked at the Romulans as the Klingon Vulcans. Right, because they're they're the emotional warring sort of incredibly brilliant logical mashup of the two species in in my mind, and so you kind of get a sense of motivations at least. So yeah, they seem very Klingon esque, and actually listening to some of the uh, commentary and looking at the behind the scenes stuff, it did you know it kind of painted that picture for me. So I had a better picture of it than I got from the film itself. Certainly, but I think it is a really interesting way to kind of take this race and the idea of pulling a little bit from Earth history as far as the Romans and the whole Romulus and Remus, the two brothers, and and all that. It's it's interesting to see how uh, John Logan and Brent Spiner and a little bit of uh, Rick Berman as they kind of wrote this and came up with the idea, kind of played with that ancient earth history as they kind of created these, these, uh, these sibling uh, races and on these sibling planets, I thought it was pretty cool. And I actually really liked how the Romulans really felt like uh, it was like Roman politicians in their, in their little Senate that they had. I thought that was kind of a nice little uh, bit that they added. And great design, too. And you know what else I think really holds up here uh, that that we can't always say of all the Star Trek shows that we've watched, even though, like, we have to forgive more of the fantasy. But the politics that we're introduced to, and this is some of the big stuff that fills in the holes. We've never been introduced to the political environment of, of the Romulan Senate, you know? We've heard about it, and it's mentioned all the time, but we've never gotten to visit. Uh, and we've never gotten to see how the leadership works. We've never gotten to see the Praetor kind of system. And I think that's really fascinating. And the ultimate um, uh, sort of political gaffe here where they have this great plan. We're going to use science to take some DNA from this guy who's a leader in Starfleet, and we're going to genetically create, we're going to test tube him and replace him uh, in Starfleet. But you know what? That 
failed because of politics and it broke. And that to me, that whole storyline of having a great idea and having it failed because politics is just <laughs> perfect to me, right? I mean, it's just perfect. They could not see long enough to actually see this plan through, and so it fell apart. It, it's just, you know what? They removed, they, they, they withdrew the budget, whatever. It feels very real and resonant, maybe right now even more than it did at the time. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was thinking is like, gosh, it seems like we've uh, seen this sort of thing happen. It's it's an interesting group. And I, I like it. I will say I was frustrated by all of the acting across the board coming from the Romulans when they're acting with each other. Um, it just they all felt incredibly stilted. And, you know, I think that falls to maybe some of the writing and uh, definitely some of the directing. It was frustrating watching the Romulans interacting or interacting with uh, the Remans. I just I I struggled with that. Not not a big uh, issue, but still something that I noticed every time they were talking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's, that's interesting to me. And a, a couple of points, you know, first, which I'm sure we'll talk about. I mean, Baird had not seen a, a single Star Trek before he started directing it. You know, I mean, that's that that's that's telling. But also, we just have we've had you know s- such kind of relatively little exposure to Romulans. Um, you know, it it, it almost feels like. Uh, uh, I don't know. I kept thinking, gosh, either they're trying too hard or they don't know what they're shooting for. Yeah. Um, because these are these are all actors who are, are you know, capable performers. You know, I mean, it's not like I, I just feel like it's a it, it's a, a blend of Star Trek races that we know so much about. And yet we just haven't seen enough of them on screen. So. Right. Um, I, I really love seeing the Remans. I thought they were it was a great um, you know, I love design, their design looking like bats, you know, it's sort of, it, it makes sense that they live on the, the dark side of their planet and they look like bats. I thought that was a nice design choice. I liked it too. I, I had a little nitpick with the way that when we see the model of the, uh, of the, uh, this system, mm-hmm. how that planet doesn't move at all. Now I understand right. that it, it, you know, one side is always in darkness and I'm totally fine with that. Like that's totally acceptable, but there's no scientific explanation for a planet to not spin at all because it just, it'll, it'll just, it doesn't work. There won't be an actual planet there. If it is going to stay one side dark all the time, then it would need to rotate like, uh, which planet is it? Neptune or Uranus that, that rotates, uh, kind of like it's a ball rolling along like that would have made more sense to me, but it doesn't move at all. And that was just, it's a petty science nerd. Yeah, I, yeah, I know. (laughs) And, and they, they write that off because of title locking. And I just don't know enough about like, you know, geoscience and space physics to, to know if (laughs) if there's even a, a possible, you know, existence of this kind of a thing. Like it's, it, they use the right words, but it does feel feel like there should be some sort of, of movement. Yeah. Um, so petty I, I issue, know. though, yeah. it, it is. It's kind of it is a kind of petty issue. Let's it's it. Is. <laughs> uh, I actually really like the 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 data and before stuff. And and I didn't when I first saw this movie. I thought it was uh, I thought it was not good. I thought it was the cheaper side of the story. And this time around, I really enjoyed it. I actually, uh, you know, I enjoyed learning more about sort of Soong's development process. Uh, the the um, you know, the the scientists that was developing these androids. And uh, I thought that was a nice touch. Um, 
I thought B4 was quaint looking in the in the uh, you know making of to hear that it was originally called B9 uh, but they couldn't ac- use that name because it was taken by some other product and so they couldn't use that in the movie uh, it was you know Brent Spiner coming up with <laughs> B4 and I think it's it is actually better it's cute and it fits what we know of Sung from the rest of the series I really struggled with B4 initially because he's such an idiot all I could think of was uh, hi, I'm Larry, and this is my brother Daryl, and this is my other brother Daryl. Just like the the idiot <laughs> twins. I mean, that's like all I had in my head was this guy is just too stupid. I hate it. I, you know, I I wouldn't mind him being kind of not smart, but the fact that he acts like an idiot just really bothered me. But then there is the turn that I thought was okay. Now it's not technically before his turn it's kind of like his programming that that Shinzon and the um, Remans have done but when he turns and kind of becomes their uh, trans transcoder to uh, kind of pull all the files out of the enterprise and and all of that uh, I was much more intrigued and I actually found it like he didn't like before had no idea what he was actually doing he was just doing this stuff and I liked that it actually was this moment where Data had to shut down his brother and that moment when he does and has that conversation with him actually like I was really surprised but I'm like it kind of hit me I was like that's actually I wasn't expecting because I was really irritated with this idiot brother, but it actually was quite affecting. God, you had feelings. I know. <laughs> it's, somebody turned my emotion chip they back did. on. They did. They turned your emotion. <laughs> <laughs> I am right with you. I think it actually it it works well. It builds well, and and it's an underappreciated element. Uh, of of the film, it also gives us uh, that wonderful conversation between Data and Before when Before is you know that that whole conversation that opens on uh, on Before's eye, uh, you know again that that theme of eye that's what makes me think it's it's you know there there was more eye in the movie <laughs> originally. I don't, I don't give Baird the credit. You don't. <laughs> no, sorry. I don't think that's very nice. <laughs> um, but there's it, it is a wonderful shot where it opens on on Before's eye and. And he moves, it moves a little bit, and it looks like an insect, uh, you know, like a, a lizard eye moving. And I think that's just such a powerful shot as we kind of expand and see that before is still locked up. Yeah. And, and yeah. Brent on Brent is, is it, it, this is a great scene, you know, talking about just sort of having the same actor on the screen at the same time. It, it holds up. I was endlessly impressed with Brent's performance with himself, um, even though before I did struggle with. But I thought Brent did a brilliant job of playing opposite himself throughout. And I was so impressed with the camera work, particularly that shot where it starts on before and it kind of goes up and then you see both of them and it kind of Mm -hmm. goes all the way around and over and you land on data. I was like, that was a really beautiful uh, motion control movement. And the way that they did that, I, I couldn't quite pinpoint, okay, so... So obviously Spiner is playing both of those characters, but at which point is is there a kind of a, a, a double in there? And so I, I couldn't quite figure it out, but I was really impressed with what they were doing. Let's just let's open. Let's talk about the open a little bit. The wedding, yeah. And because I my memory of this was that I hated the wedding because I've always put it. Uh, in the same category as Worf's promotion to lieutenant commander on the the ship at sea in the holodeck. And on this viewing, uh, I have to say I am totally wrong in classifying 
these two things. Opening on Picard's speech, uh, 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 you know, as best man at the Riker-Troy wedding was really touching. And it turns out for me, not a, a, not a way to just, not a gimmick. It wasn't a gimmick, but it was a setup to what is about to happen in this movie where everybody's going off in their own direction. I definitely agree. I quite like the moments of the wedding. I like the the speech that Picard gives. I think it's it's pretty touching when he has his little uh, moment talking to both of the two of them. Uh, I, yeah. I thought it was really quite nice. I always end up stumbling when uh, Data decides to sing Blue Skies, though. Why is that? Is it because you uh, have no love in your heart? It's because I have no love in my heart. Absolutely. I'm feeling like you have no love in your by heart. That, by this point, uh, my emotion chip has not been activated. No, no, no. And, uh, <laughs> so it was, it, I don't know. It's And I understand, it's, like, this is one of those things where I know that, that Data was constantly doing new things and trying to find ways to be more human. He was painting, he was playing the violin, he was, you know, whatever. I, there are all many, so many different things that Data was doing on the show to try being more human, and and singing certainly fits into that. I know that Brent Spiner was, uh, you know, a Broadway singer, and so there's really no reason he can't do it. I I don't know why it ends up troubling me. I just feel like it's it's one of those moments that feels a little more like a uh, you know placating the fans rather than uh, just really helping move the story forward. I don't know. It's it's a moment I struggle with in this film in this particular scene because I do like the scene. Yeah, I, I do. I, I agree. I I mean I think it's actually um, it's actually quite nice and it's not prolonged. I mean it's not it's not overlong that sequence and I think it's you know it is it, in many respects as you say like it's a it's another chapter marker in his journey toward sort of humanity. Uh, and uh, and in that regard, I think it's I, I think it works. Um, I I get it though. I mean, I I get it. I also think it plays off of Riker's love of jazz, and and as a, you know, he he plays the trumpet, and we get a lot of that in the next generation. Trombone. And, I mean, trombone. Yeah, uh, and we get a lot of him playing the trombone in the next generation, and there are so many concerts, uh, and um, you know, so I I think it's. It, it's a nice. It, it does make for a nice gift. I found it was a nice touch. I'm. I'm. I'm sorry that you. Well, uh, were so- and and they do at least find a way to bring it back to the story. And so yeah. I, I did appreciate that. Like at the end, when before kind of starts mumbling the lyrics to "Blue Sky," almost as if that memory is finally starting to trigger. Um, yeah. I thought that was a nice callback, actually, and it was actually quite uh, poignant as Picard kind of goes through it a little bit with him and something about what it does to Picard in that moment and watching as Picard leaves the room, like totally like reborn suddenly. I I think that it actually worked really well to kind of cement those final moments of the story. So to that end, I I'm, I'm going backward a little bit on my, (laughs) because I like that. I, so I don't know where I sit anymore. I've confused oh, myself. Oh, uh, you know, I'm going to call this just a little win <laughs> along the road. Uh, we get a brief glimpse of Wesley Crusher uh, right. sitting at the table. And that, uh, you know, I, I have to say, 
I'm a big fan of having Wesley at the table sitting next to mom uh, because it also answers a question. He is in uniform. Uh, and when he left, he, he left on this interstellar ver- voyage of space across space and time with the traveler when he left the show. And uh, now he's back, which means he's probably, you know, a creature of higher power. But he's going to be using that power for good. And he's part of Starfleet again, which I it's for some reason, I find that satisfying. And we get that we, he doesn't have any lines, but he's there and he needed to be there in this of all movies. He did have lines and they're in the deleted scenes. Um, right. It's a shame that he didn't get to say anything. He was always a character I loved in the show. And, uh, yeah, I kind of missed that he didn't get to be in any of the movies, really. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, it is season nice one to was him, a though. tough. It was tough. Well, season one was, was tough for him. Yeah, I, yeah. I got to say. But, but, you know, after that, everything was great. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in terms of other things that are revealed in this thing, of course, we're talking about Troy Riker, uh, the, the Troy Riker thing. Finally. Right. It's it's I love that they are finally married and that there is weird stuff, uh, you know, there. <laughs> like weird uh, stuff around Worf not not wanting to go naked uh, to the the wedding on Beta Z, uh, which is funny because he was with Troy for so long. Uh, like it's just I, I love that they're circling back to a lot of those little emotional beats that we knew. So that's that's great. Yeah, and it's uh, it is just like you said. I mean, this is they really planned on this being kind of the final uh, hurrah. This was really kind of their Star Trek six. I mean, they didn't get to sign it at the end or anything, mm-hmm. but everybody and not everybody, but most people went off on their own way by we, the time we get to the end of this film. And that really is kind of closing the chapter on the next generation crew. Yeah. And so it it was nice to see Troy and Riker together, and then they get to go off on the Titan at the end of this. Well, we don't yeah. see it, but they're going to be heading off on that USS Titan. It is. And, you know, their storyline continues in canon, uh, you know, elsewhere. And, uh, you know, Riker becomes this sort of legendary captain. He's behind a number of first contact scenarios. Like, he's he becomes uh, sort of the, the Picard uh, of his own ship, and that's that's very cool. Yeah. Uh, what's on your nerd list? So a few things. Um, okay. Uh, this is this is just not so much a nerd thing, but just a silly thing. Is Romulan ale really the only thing that people drink in this universe? I mean, it's banned, <laughs> but it's the only thing that I swear anybody is ever drinking other than Earl Grey hot. Right. Tea, Earl Grey hot. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's the only other thing. Yeah. Okay. Nobody drinks water anymore, Andy. No, it's just Romulan ale, but you it's know. banned, but they all are aware yep. of that. Right. Okay. Here's here's a here's a question. I'm not quite uh, sure on the the policies here. I'm trying to remember in our I can't remember if it's Star Trek Into Darkness. One of them begins in in kind of a similar thing. So the, you've got this thing that they talk about before they go down on whatever this planet is to find all the different bits and pieces of B four, where they say, oh, they have not discovered warp technology. So we know this is essentially kind of like Earth in first contact. You know, these are people who don't really know that there are aliens out there, right? Yeah. And um, so they fly down in their ship and they start picking up all these pieces and everything. And then the locals attack them. And so they start attacking back and then they, they jump off a cliff into their ship and fly away. Now it, it, it feels like some of this is violating what the Federation would say is, you know, what they're supposed to be doing. They're not supposed to be revealing a lot of this stuff to the locals, right? The prime directive. 
Yeah. That's what that is. Yes. And and I love how it does. We'll talk about how it pays off in uh, in um, the the second reboot movie uh, when the ship they hi- they hide the entire Enterprise in the ocean. Yeah, uh, and it's because it becomes a thing of worship. And I think that would have been a nice touch here. Here's this flying thing that caught one of their their little dune buggies, and they already knew about the dune buggies because they have dune buggies. But the flying thing that catches it, that's something that we, that is a thing of worship, as far as we know. Uh, you know, it just seemed like that was brushed aside. Uh, and to your, to your point about attacking the locals, I, I don't know. I mean, that, that you've officially, uh, exceeded the capacity of my Star Trek nerdery. I don't know <laughs> what the limits are of the prime directive. Like it's, it sure feels like, uh, you would want to avoid killing the locals with your, uh, you know, your laser weapons. Um, if if you were really living up to your vaunted prime directive, I don't know. But maybe yeah. in defense only, it's it's well, okay. And that's what I was like, well, I mean, they're defending themselves. Obviously, these guys roll up and start shooting. But, you know, I was a little surprised that they're, you know, just out and out, like, pulling out the guns and, like, blowing them away. I'm like, geez. Yeah. yeah. That seems a little, I mean, these are. It's a, you know, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're goons. They're thugs. Yeah. They 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 look like thugs, so I guess that they must be. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so here's a here's something that's been brought up in both the past two films. Um, both of the antagonists have brought up the Borg uh, to Picard as if it's like, oh, you know, you and the Borg, as if it's some petty fight that Picard has with the Borg. Aren't the Borg trying to assimilate everybody in the universe? Why does it seem like uh, like the the Sona? And uh, and the Remans are like, oh yeah, the Borg. Well, that's the thing that Picard is dealing with with the Borg. You know, <laughs> thank God Picard's on this. Yeah, it's yeah. like, is it just weird, or is this like some? I mean, isn't anyone else worried about the Borg? They're trying to assimilate everybody. By this point in the timeline, actually, not very far after uh, the end of Voyager, when Janeway. Uh, leads the Voyager home through the the trans warp corridor and blows up the the Borg Queen and the the main Borg uh, travel conduit through subspace. Uh, the Borg are no longer a threat in the Alpha Quadrant. Like they can't get they can't get there. There's there's no there's no way to get there from here. And so I think. I'm with you on one hand that it feels an awful lot like they're, everybody's just sort of nodding, you know, like, oh, the Borg. It's, it's sort of like, I'm I'm sorry about your divorce. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's the knowing nod. Um, but, but the truth is, I think everybody is really feeling much better about the Borg because the Borg are largely, thanks to Voyager, not much of an issue anymore. Well, that makes sense. Because I, yeah. I, I was like, Borg seem like a pretty big deal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So we talked about this a few times. So these ships, they have families on them. There are yes. like people living on these ships. Now, this becomes like this mission where Picard ends up like basically saying to his crew, hey, if this isn't, doesn't work, we're going to basically blow up the ship. We're going to destroy everybody just so we can take this guy down. Now, <laughs> now, how does that... Even the children. Right. How does that land when it's like, yeah, plus all the families on here? Oh, my word. Well, uh, so the Enterprise D was the family ship. 
And okay. then the Borg and the Dominion came, and they changed classes. And you notice, that, I mean, the design of the ship from the D to the E changed very much. It became much more of a warship. Sure. And at that point, the ship got smaller. Uh, the, the The crew complement changed. It got smaller. Um, there are still families, and when you look at the at, at sort of how they write about the ships, there there are no children on board uh, in the Enterprise E. Uh, unless one is like born there and then it's like if you have a couple and they're both crew members on the ship because that's that's a very important part of of star trek like as important as the captain's chair and the giant view screen it we want to keep people if they're in a family or if they're a couple we want to keep them on a ship together uh because long-term you know um service is not good and for you emotionally, we want to keep you emotionally healthy. That's why Riker and Troy are going to the Titan together. Um, and and so, if a child is born on the ship, uh, then it can stay on the ship until other arrangements can be made. But largely, no, they they get rid of the kids pretty quickly on the Sovereign class ships and above. Uh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, last nerd question for you. So. At the end of this, the the E is pretty much destroyed. Enterprise E, they plow it into the scimitar, <laughs> and it's pretty pretty much destroyed. Yet they decide to repair it as opposed to just building a new uh, Enterprise. We don't have an Enterprise F at the end of this. They don't repair the D after that one plummets into the planet, getting pretty destroyed. This one gets pretty destroyed too, but they just re- repair it. Why is that? Well, I I can't tell you why they chose to repair it. I can only assume that they chose to repair it because the damage to the saucer section was reparable, but there was like they were still able to, you know, like they didn't lose the nacelles, right? Like they didn't lose the engine. Sure. Uh, and so, which they did do for the D, that whole half. Yeah, exactly. Up, yeah. That's right. That that was that was a pretty significant <laughs> loss. Yeah. And and so uh, so they they did uh, do that. But the the other thing that we we miss in this movie that was in the original script, right? That was mm-hmm. was cut is that we actually see uh, a new XO uh, meet. Picard for the first time and uh, named Martin Madden and he takes over for Riker as the first officer and uh, and so we see him uh, they they get on the ship together we see Picard uh, come into the to the rebuilt bridge and meet Madden and there's some there's some you know silliness. stuff silliness about the chair but the one thing that I've been looking forward to and this is aside from the ships. The one thing I've been looking forward to for weeks and weeks, Andy, and I can't believe this was actually cut, but was shot, is this bit in the script uh, where uh, Picard comes on and he says, what's this? And Worf says, your new your new chair, sir. And the ensign who's installing it says, it's the Mark Seven, Captain, state-of-the-art ergonomics, command interfaces with... Worf says, I told him you're uncomfortable with your... You were comfortable with your old chair. And Picard says, let's give it a try. And he settles into his new command chair, looks around for a beat at his new bridge crew, fresh-faced kids, a new generation to teach and nurture. He smiles. He says, feels good. Worf and Geordi exchange a look, surprised. The ensign points. Try that button, sir. Picard presses a button on the chair and... Zip! Metal restraints fly into position around his waist and shoulders. Seat belts! Picard is surprised. A beat. Then Picard smiles and says, it's about time. Yeah. <laughs> right? 
That's funny. I can't decide if I like it or not because I keep asking, like, why don't these stupid ships have seatbelts? I know. And then it they is an have it. I'm like, God, you. it's kind of and- dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it lights me up. I've been, I, I love that it, it it's there. And I love, again, that it's such a J.J. Abrams nod later uh, that uh, that we get to actually revisit that. So one more thing about the F. This is an interesting thing. So Jordy retires uh, from Starfleet and goes his different way. Uh, he goes his own way. And it turns out, according to uh, uh, Star Trek Online, there, there's a little bit of a, of a divergence in the, in the narrative. And Jordy actually is... Uh, credited to designing the jellyfish, which was uh, commissioned by the Vulcan Science Academy. Uh, and and where do we know the jellyfish from, Andy? I, I'm trying to remember. I don't remember. Should I? The next Star Trek movie. Oh. It is the it, the jellyfish is old Spock's ship that gets thrown back in time. It has that Ah. funky tail on it, and it has the red matter in it. Uh, That ship was canonically designed by Geordi LaForge, and I thought that was a fascinating tie. Interesting. Yeah. So so Geordi doesn't stay with Picard? Because I was like, I think he's the only one. He and Data are the only ones that really stay there. No, he he really, he, he doesn't. Well, you mean before? Yeah, sorry, before. Yeah. And then I guess Worf, I don't know if Worf stays or goes back to Deep Space Nine. Like at this point, I'm not sure what where Worf is well, the chronology this, anymore. Uh, well, I can, I can tell you, a lot of this is in a comic uh, series called Countdowns, a miniseries uh, that was leading up to Star Trek, to this movie that, that they've in, inserted. And Picard had left Enterprise and Starfleet. He was a Federation ambassador to Vulcan. Worf had left Starfleet and was a general in the Klingon Defense Force. And before the, the now restored data is now the captain of the Enterprise. Uh, and wow. um, so, yeah, there, there are some, some significant uh, changes um, there. So gotcha. before, it's, and, and we'll talk about that in a minute. I want to talk more about, about before and narrative betrayal. So the in we do have a star, uh, uh, the an Enterprise F and it's really cool, uh, but we don't actually see it anywhere on screen because uh, it's only in Star Trek Online. But it's awesome. Yeah, it we is, never we never see oh. the C either. Like we go from the B, we see the birth of the B, and then we jump forward in time to the D, and we never see the C. Well, nowhere in the in the film we do see the sea uh, as captained by uh, Rachel Garrett in a ATNG episode called Yesterday's Enterprise, where it comes through a temporal rift, and uh, they they have to do some, you know, time hopping fun. Uh, and Whoopi is in it. It's a Guinan thing. She's of course, of course, she's the only one who recognizes something. <laughs> something is afoot. <laughs> uh, and, but we do see the the scene that that episode was written by uh, Ron Moore. Um, oh, so yeah, there you go. Cool. What else? What else do we have? Is that it? That's it. I think we're ready to move forward. <laughs> okay, let's move forward by moving back, Andy. Uh, this was actually so. I, I this is my question for you. So this was essentially John Logan as credit for writing the script with Brent Spiner, right? Brent Spiner data. Yep. And when you hear these guys talk about it, uh, they they have a deep understanding, obviously, of Star Trek. And they are insiders if there were ever insiders. And John Logan was was obviously outside, but he was a huge fan, huge, huge fan, right? He knows all the apocrypha of Star Trek. And so these two write this story, and uh, along with, obviously, Rick Berman. 
And and you and I come at this having enjoyed this movie. Why did we enjoy this movie when it was written by insiders? Because it feels like we have made the case that this there was usually too much fan service when it's handled by insiders. Well, what went wrong? The issues that I have with the films tend to be the moments that really feel like fan service. And so I think that some of the stuff that they probably put in for the fans um, is some of the stuff that irritated me. I also think that Stuart Baird, some of his direction, uh, I, I struggle with him as a director, I think. Um, I, I think he he's one of those uh, guys who jumped from editing to do just a few films. He only did three films. Um, and I'm like, well, maybe he should have just stuck with editing because I think he's really solid with his editing, but not necessarily always great with directing. But I, but I don't know. I, I think that it's because... My my sense is that they went after a thread of an interesting um, race that's an antagonist for these guys that really had not been dealt with very well before. I mean, you know, like I said earlier, the Romulans have been in the shows before, but we've never had a movie about them. And they're an interesting race and they they pose an interesting threat. And so I was really intrigued by... By that, and so even though there are elements that I do struggle with, I do feel like they went after an interesting story, and I think the whole idea of of the kind of the yin and yang of of an individual and just looking at the good, like the dark and the light side of of Picard, the dark and light side of Data, yeah, I think that really stood out for me as an interesting angle to take with this, and I really feel. That Patrick Stewart, I mean, he really brought his A game into this film. I I had such a great time watching him when he first meets uh, 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 Shinzon, and just really kind of so many times throughout the film, the way that he's acting and interacting, I was just really struck by this is possibly his strongest performance in any of these films. I loved it, even better than what he was bringing to the table in First Contact. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I think you look at that dinner, you know, the the dinner where they have this that super candid conversation with one another where he's trying to you can really feel him trying to wrap his head around who he is talking to, uh, recognizing it and yet not recognizing it and hearing the story about about seeing a younger self looking at this this kid who's telling these stories about being brutally beaten. And, and you can feel Stuart rationalizing that as the captain, you know, the, you know, a life that he knows so well, and yet here's one that's him. It, it, he knows nothing of this life. I, I think it's just incredibly powerful. Yeah. You want to you want to just move into the deep scene? It feels like we're already kind of there. Let's do it. This is a fairly simple one. It is the away party meets Praetor Shinzon face-to-face. The away party is most of the bridge crew, as usual. The, they're in the, the, like, I don't know, how do you describe, what is the room it's oh, I heard them say what it was. It's it's like a big meeting room for him, right? Yeah, it's like their their great big kind of uh, entry hall. It's like their great. It's like a great <laughs> great room. room. Yeah. It's their great room. Yes, <laughs> yes, the great room. So they're in the great room, and we have them all. What is it that we like so much about this particular setup? It's a great intro to Shinzon. First of all, um, I I know there was another scene that they had shot with Shinzon. Um, talking to some of the Romulans that was that played before this, I think Baird, um, in his smarts as an editor, realized that we we need to save the reveal for Shinzon for this particular moment. This is where we want to meet him when, when Picard meets him because it's it's a very powerful moment when a person meets a clone of themselves. 
and I think that um, that it was handled really well. I loved the darkness, uh, playing with that, playing with kind of the 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 nature of the dark and light side of people, and and just the way that the interactions happen throughout the scene. I was really taken by how Shinzon sees uh, uh, Troy and is just taken by the fact that this is the first human woman he has ever seen in his entire life. And it's just a short bit of this scene, but he's really kind of spellbound by her. And I found that incredibly intriguing. And it becomes a key uh, point uh, as he kind of um, digs deeper into his relationship with her uh, over a, a later scene. And there's also another deleted scene that that had that even more when he kind of does the the uh, the mental rape um, it was it was so intriguing but it's it's just it's really fascinating how Tom Hardy plays him and how how Picard reacts to him how really everybody reacts to him this is uh, like just the way that the crew reacts in this particular scene I was really taken by just how they all were so in the moment and it was really a, a kind of a, a strong. Um, a bit for everybody. Oh yeah, it really was. I love the way uh, the way this is shot allows you to really take in uh, the blocking uh, of of both of sort of Shinzon and his you know the viceroy is viceroy's in the shadows and the rest of the crew in particular. I I the the high shot where we're sort of on the stairs behind Shinzon and he is as you say he's totally taken with Deanna and he starts moving toward her you know and 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 you watch. Him, you know, he's Deanna Zoy, uh, Deanna Troy of Beta Z, empathic and telepathic, and he's talking about all this stuff. How does he know this? How does he know this? He's walking toward her, and Riker comes from across behind uh, the rest of the crew, and and you can tell he's moving in a defensive position, and and they're both kind of triangulating on Deanna, which is a uh, the the physical manifestation of everything that is to come in in the rest of their relationship throughout the course of this film. Uh, you know, may I touch your hair? It's just he's. <laughs> It, Shinzon is a, it's an incredibly creepy and yet weirdly innocent uh, portrayal of of this guy who, as you say, he's, he's learning to learn humans for the first time, even though it is a little strange that he's in the position of power that he is in uh, as an outsider. I thought that was actually really interesting to hear them talking about in the um uh, the additional stuff, how they had this whole storyline with Shinzon and how he and the Remans, when they were fighting during the Dominion, uh, Dominion War or whatever it was, um, how he was like this this big head leader of the Remans. And it's like, oh, it's like I liked that they had this huge backstory. And that's the sort of stuff that I feel like they did miss in this. Like they really needed some of that additional material to help build and, and give us more of that so that non-Star Trek people might have gotten more out of it. Yeah, that's a really good point. He's so deceptive. And that's something else I really like about this scene is it doesn't seem deceptive. Like he's playing it as if, I mean, you know, we know that there's this darkness to them. And if you've seen the trailer, you pretty much know that, that he is the antagonist. That's one thing the trailer really does destroy is any sense that there, there might be, a, you know, a mystery. Is this guy good? Yeah, that's a great bad? point. Right. 
But the way that he's playing is like, you know, I'm looking for unity. There's been, always been this divide with the Romulans and, and the Federation, and I'm here to try to unify everything and to create this unity um, between everybody. That's a really interesting angle to kind of take here uh, as, you know, bringing the representatives of the Federation here to this meeting, talking about that. I, I thought, you know, this is an interesting moment for the Federation to say, hey, we're basically opening up peace talks with the Romulans. Very interesting. Um, and I think that he plays it so nicely. I don't think it helps that he's got the Viceroy kind of hanging out in the shadows because the Viceroy just naturally looks pretty scary. I don't think you'd, you'd ever think the Remans were actually good if you no. saw one of them. No. Like you, you're not going to expect them to be the good guys. No, you would not. No, no, you would not. Oh, yes, yes. Our, our protagonist is a dragon. <laughs> that's right. right. Uh, no, I, I'm I'm right with you. I I think the lighting is another thing. It's just we've talked about the darkness. It's just exceptional. It is exceptional uh, the way they introduce Shinzon in and have him lit in reverse. Uh, it is such a great way uh, to kind of capitalize on the mystery of this until they raise the lights and the the close up on Hardy as he's illuminated with warmth. Uh, and at this point in the film, he looks very soft and very young. And you, I, I, I think they nailed the Picard-Shinzon pairing. I, I think you just absolutely nail it in this scene. Yeah, it's, it's really um, nicely done. I think the cinematography, uh, Jeffrey Kimball, as the cinematographer here, um, like you said, the lighting was just perfect. But yeah, paired with the makeup effects that they did uh, to really kind of give Tom Hardy that Picard look with a little bit of uh, uh, the nose uh, makeup, the chin makeup, the scar on his lip to make him not look quite so uh, so full. Mm-hmm. Everything, I think, really lent to giving him a really great Picard look. I was really... Um, I enjoyed it quite a bit. As a side note, I had some real issues. This was the first of the films where I really had some issues with Michael Westmore's makeup. I mean, there's when we see Dina Meyer um, as one of the um, Romulan uh, women earlier, her makeup is terrible. Like her face looks great, but it's like they stopped at her jawline. And then the color of her face is totally different than the color on her neck. Very frustrating. Same thing. There's a there's a few moments where Ron Perlman's makeup. You can see his neck, the his regular neck skin popping out from under his costume. Um, I was really kind of surprised by that. But here, I think everything about Tom Hardy is great. And I actually we don't see it in this particular scene, but later as he's is basically his body is kind of deteriorating and his veins get nastier and everything. I I, I thought it all looked really nice. Yeah, I think so too. I think I'm I'm able to forgive a lot of the neckline stuff in Dina Meyer. Um, Ugh, you know, that's because, all I can stare at. <laughs> yeah, and and this is another one. The Romulan uh, makeup in general. It, I have such a hard time looking at it after the such exceptional Klingon makeup in the Undiscovered Country. And and I know I I harp on that way too much, but it set the bar in a way that that it just they've never been able to to, um, you know, to surpass. Uh, Certainly not in a way that Herman Zimmerman keeps surpassing his own work in production design. I mean, every set is cooler, bigger, uh, you know, more complex, beautiful. I mean, it's just great. 
Yeah, this set, uh, the stairs in this set, the window, everything is just a, just a beautiful design coming from him. Really, everything he did um, to work on the scimitar. I mean, just it's a, it's a beautifully designed ship. Yeah, it really is. And you know what's beautiful about it is that it it maintains some of the things that are stock and trade for Star Trek. Like obviously the view screen, um, there's the the bridge chair, but the look of the bridge actually, you know, it feels substantively different than the other bridges. And and you know, we've talked about the Klingon bridge has sort of evolved into becoming, you know, more akin to the Federation bridge and uh, and so all the bridges have kind of the same look, but now we have a bridge with multiple levels in it. You know, we have this big back staircase that leads you up into this this high room above the the you know the main um, command area of the bridge on the scimitar. It just looks great. Every room, every space, including this observation deck, deck where we meet, where the the two meet. That it it looks like it should be on the steps of the Romulan Senate, but this is in a ship. And and I think it just perfectly matches the scale of the scimitar in space. I, I just can't get enough of it. I also uh, enjoyed the costume uh, quite a bit, that iridescent costume. I really thought that the costumes they had for uh, for Shinzon, along with the, just the Remans in general, just yeah. just great stuff. My understanding is that they actually took that that beautiful kind of purple iridescent look that works so well in the costumes and they tried to give that same look to the scorpion that little ship that uh, picard and data steal at one point yeah um and they decided it just looked too cute and so they had to go back to kind of the grays and blacks for the it's like ship. it's like my first it's scorpion like, yeah it's yeah it's, much. it's like yeah. my pretty pony yeah, yeah. i, I can yeah. imagine how cute that would have been this little glowing purple ship yeah <laughs> uh what do you think of the music it's not my favorite of jerry goldsmith's scores for the trek films but I still really like it. He's got enough of the themes in here that works nicely. Uh, my favorite moment is actually when, um, when they sh- they as I was just talking about the scorpion, when they get out of the scorpion, the Enterprise beams the scorpion onto them, and then they take off in warp. That's just like a fantastic, fantastic moment in this movie. He developed this five note theme that he kind of uses throughout, and it it can be so menacing. You hear it right at the beginning. It works really nicely, but he can also play it in different ways. And so there's it it plays really nicely as a very tender theme when uh, during the dinner scene. And here in this scene, you get little hints of it that that are still just really mysterious. It's not quite so menacing, but it has this really nice mystery in it. And uh, he, there's some subtle bells and electronics. Jerry Goldsmith always lo- loves his electronics. And it just it it has a really mysterious feel that works nicely for this scene. This it, it, mo- most of the score in this particular scene is the tail end of the piece beforehand, and then the start of the piece that builds into the next scene. Yeah. But it still works nicely in context of the scene. I think so too. This is uh, there's a lot of cuts in this movie. Yeah, the editor uh, they they really worked a lot. I mean, I know that Stuart Baird probably had a lot of say, being an editor himself. But Dallas Pewitt uh, also um, you know did a lot. And just looking at the scene, I was kind of blown away by how many cuts there are. There's just so many little tiny shots throughout. It, it was almost like Michael Bay editing. It just doesn't feel <laughs> it doesn't feel that way. But as you watch it, and I was watching it you know, again, just looking at the cuts, I'm like, man, they are all over the place. So it's uh, it's interesting, but it's effective. So where would you expect this one to fall on on the list? Just let's just take next generation movies uh, in the uh, overall sort of uh, average shot length. 
so we had first first contact, uh, first generations, and first contact, insurrection, and nemesis. Well, I feel like this is the fastest cutting so far of the of the um, the next generation films. Like it just just looking at the the shots in this particular scene, I felt like it was cut all over the place. I would say that. Jonathan Frakes' two films probably have the slower pace. Uh, I'm trying to think of Generations. I would say Generations is uh, between the two. Well, you're almost you're almost all right, but you're enough wrong that you failed. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Generations was by far the slowest at five point oh. four seven uh, seconds per shot average. Uh, Frakes was. Oh, wow. He, they were almost exactly the same, 4.4 uh, and 4.6 for First Contact and Insurrection, respectively. And you're right on the money with Nemesis 3.09, uh, significantly sh- uh, faster pace Like I said, as a it feels result. very Michael yeah. Bay. It, it feels yeah, it like does. an action editor cutting like uh, behind the film. You know, it I sure mean, Stuart does. Baird, uh, I mean, we've talked about him on the show as an editor before on things right. like uh the casino royale i mean yeah. he's he very much is a, a an action editor that i think um speaks highly to what he's kind of uh bringing to the table here as a director and spoiler he's actually faster than abrams <laughs> well, i'm not surprised <laughs> Uh, so that'll be fun to talk about next week. I'm I'm with you, but uh, you know, at the same time, I didn't feel like this film was rushed. I didn't feel it didn't feel rushed to me. It well, felt appropriate. Yeah, I I agree, and that's I think the the an interesting difference between someone like him and Michael Bay. Sometimes the way that Michael Bay has his films cut feels so intense where yeah. you, it's hard to even focus on what we're supposed to be looking at because it's just cut so quickly. Here, I feel like Baird has a good handle on things, but he's doing it in a way where where I'm not losing sense of space. And I think that's a, a key element that he has, at least in some of his action uh, editing. I mean, it makes sense that when you look at something like Casino Royale, I never had an issue understanding where the action was in that film either. Um, and so I think that holds true here with what he's doing in this film. Uh, I do too. It's interesting. The Generations and Insurrection, both edited by Peter Berger, uh, Berger, who also had done Final Frontier and The Voyage Home. uh, It's interesting, I think, first of all, that that Berger didn't do First Contact. You know, why why that that split? But then we have Dallas, and this was Dallas's first trek. And and I don't know, did Dallas do any work on the TV show? I don't know. But this certainly was the first film track and it feels appreciably different to me i don't see any track on his uh, filmography other than uh this one this film yeah yeah but well but he did he did work with Stuart baird before on mm-hmm. executive decision yeah so i wonder if it, in his uh, past career if he had worked with um, baird yeah. as like an assistant or something i don't see that either though so i don't know i'm not interesting I'm, Curious, yeah. Well, overall, I, I think this scene is, uh, you know, it really exemplifies so many of these things, right? How editing and camera and and just general pacing work together because it is, it's as it 
could have been a real slog of a scene. It's not. It's set in a gloomy, dark place. It feels yet uh, energetic. Uh, and it has a lot of people on screen at the same time and yet doesn't feel cluttered. Uh, so many pieces uh, going into making this particular scene work uh, where it could have fallen apart. Yeah, very strong scene. I thought it was interesting reading about kind of the, the relationships that some people had. I mean, you know, coming off of two films with Jonathan Frakes directing. I mean, he clearly was part of the family. He was in kind of the club, so to speak. Stuart Baird comes in um, almost the uh, almost even a stronger kind of uh, reaction to the way that he wanted to separate himself from Star Trek, quote unquote, than uh, Nicholas Meyer did. I mean, he really like didn't didn't want to watch any shows. I mean, he was very kind of kept himself separated from all that weirdly. Uh, Marina Sirtis called him an idiot. Um, uh, I think that uh, that uh, LeVar Burton um, has spoken unflatteringly of him, uh, both of them upset that he never watched any episodes of the show to get to know these people. I, I think that's it's very interesting that um, there was that clash between these guys um, and their director. And, and a lot of it just seems like, at least with Nicholas Meyer, it seemed like he was really trying to, uh, he was he was coming in as an outsider, but it didn't mean that he was trying to keep himself outside. You know, he was he was trying to get himself into the story so that he could do the best story within their world that he could. And he always had fun with it. Um, Stuart Baird, at least the way that it sounded, it's like it didn't sound like he was, um, really excited about helping expand the Star Trek universe in, in any unique way. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, interesting to to kind of feel that. Uh, it's it's interesting that he didn't get a chance to sort of participate the way Nicholas Meyer did, coming in as an outsider and then really creating things that that you know added to canon. Uh, I, it's, I don't know if that, I think, I think I'm sad about that. Maybe it was because he wasn't a writer yeah, and, and Nicholas Meyer really kind of started as a writer. Maybe yeah, that's part that's of true. it. Well, let's, let's just talk briefly then about, um, uh, about, you know, the writer, uh, John Logan, uh, because I, I don't think we've talked enough about John Logan, but John Logan is, is a guy that's, uh, the pen behind movies that I like a lot, right? Like? Come on, man. Gladiator, The Aviator, Sweeney Todd, uh, Hugo, uh, Skyfall, and Spectre. Uh, I, I'm gonna say uh, I'm gonna say this next one and not mean it. Alien Covenant. Um, <laughs> uh, he's he is the pen behind movies that I I think highly of. I uh, and, I, I, so. I love Rango. And Rango, Rango's yeah, Rango. Yeah. There's another one. Yeah, Last Samurai. I'm. I was less fond of that, but it's not his fault. I don't think. I, I didn't mind Last Samurai. I actually thought it was a pretty fun movie. Yeah. Um, I might have had some issues with it, but I still really liked it. Yeah, John Logan, I think, is a, is a solid Hollywood writer, and he did this shortly after Gladiator. Uh, I well, I think it was actually his project right afterward. I know he. I think he stepped in to help with the Time Machine, but I don't know if that was before or after this. But I, I you know. He, I have to say, you know, he's a person who clearly loved and respected the franchise. And I, I guess it's it's lucky for us that, and it's lucky for Stuart Baird that he was there because I think we needed that voice. And I think that between he and Frakes, they brought that to the table to really help um, give these characters some, um, so a bit of a meaty story to work with. 
I do too. I I, I think this is uh, this is a great showcase of him, and it's definitely a love of the craft that I think is largely underappreciated. You know what I just caught on this this viewing? <laughs> I can't believe I've it's taken me so long to figure this out. The weapon on the scimitar, the ultimate kind of radiation weapon, you know, the yeah. whatever thermolytic radiation. That that's the same as the weapon that they placed in the Romulan Senate in the beginning, but there was a mini one. Oh, you're right. You didn't. I never caught that. I thought that I completely, once that opening sequence was gone over the years, once I've moved through it, I'd completely forgotten that that was like a little thermolytic desktop grenade. (laughs) Exactly what it is in her purse, conveniently. But it's, (laughs) right? But it's really cool. I loved it. I loved this sort of the the helix uh, energy wave that we see float up and that turns into like imaginary glowy uh, circuit boards floating in the sky. Like I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I, I like it. And I do like the helix, especially in context of what this story is about and kind of the the kind of the duality the fact that it was uh, it almost did look like a genetic helix i thought was a pretty interesting thing you know i have to say i didn't mention this earlier but i really loved i i ended up just so happy to see the way that the romulan story evolved over the course of this how that you know we have these romulan um saboteurs that are working with shinzon that help him destroy the senate so that you know they can kind of um, you know, take over. She has that thing with him where she's going to watch the the head of the military guy and make sure he's in line. But then all the Romulans kind of group together and turn on Shinzon. And I love that scene when the Romulans turn up and, you know, uh, and Riker's just like, oh, just when you think it couldn't get any worse. And then all of a sudden the Romulans are like, hey, we're here to help. I'm like, this was a fantastic turn that I didn't see coming. I really liked that. And I thought that was a great uh, way to play that, especially having set up, um, speaking of setups and payoffs, you know, you set up this whole idea that, you know, there are these political turnovers quite a bit in the Romulan Empire. And here we have another one. That is a great Great point, and uh, I think it works really well. And it's a bit of irony that it resolves that way with the Romulan Empire, given that it's the that that was the initial farce uh, that Shinzon was trying to sell to the Federation in the first place. uh, That it's a time for peace. So uh, I thought that was really interesting. I thought it was great. And I will say, Dina Meyer, even under all that bad Romulan makeup. I'm just still in love with her. Of course you are. (laughs) Of course you are. Um, And uh, it was nice to see Brian Singer in his very brief uh, flash on screen. Yeah, so brief that I missed it. I I knew he was there, but I never pinned him. Oh, really? It's so (laughs) brief. It is when uh, they they need to go on an away. It's one of the away missions that he says, uh, you know, uh, Worf, you're with me. And Worf leaves his station and Brian Singer swings in and takes his place. Oh, okay, I that's know. It. So that's when they the go down to the dune buggy planet. Right, right. Gotcha. Uh, so it's 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 one of those. It's funny. Gotcha. Yeah. How did it do at award season? Well, it wasn't a big award <laughs> winning movie. <laughs> it did have one win and four nominations. Uh, the nominations were the Saturn Awards, nominated for Best Science Fiction Film, Lost to Minority Report, Best Supporting Actor for Tom Hardy, lost to Andy Serkis for Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Uh, nice yeah. to see Serkis getting some recognition for Gollum. Uh, best costumes, Bob Ringwood. He lost. It was a tie. Uh, the Two Towers and Star Wars uh, Two: Attack of the Clones. And uh, Michael Westmore lost Best Makeup to Lord of the Rings: The Two Towers. A very much a uh, 
a uh, a Hobbit friendly award season. The one win that it did have, it was kind of a funny one. It was it was for the Young Artist Awards. It won the Best Family Feature Film Fantasy. Wow. Of all the Star Trek films, this feels like the least family-friendly one, <laughs> like with all the mental rape and everything going on. But there it is. <laughs> it won. <laughs> and, and we should say, speaking of mental rape, uh, once again, Marina Sirtis outdoes herself compared to the movie immediately before it. Yeah, I thought that uh, from our conversation last time. I'm like, it's true. She just gets better and better as these she films does. go. Better and, and I, better. I loved her moment when she was like mentally trying to find the uh, the scimitar and and the way that Ron Perlman's uh, viceroy character was was kind of like reacting and, and just kind of like shuddering as he was trying to shut her out. Like that mental battle was yeah. like what was like so exciting to me. I had such a great time with it. And I sh- we should also say she's she's at the helm when they floor <laughs> it and she gets to wreck the ship again. And this she's, time it works. For right. some reason it works to me. Like maybe she's she's just over the last, you know, four films and seven years on the show, she's finally learned how enough to drive that she can ram a ship into another ship. Well, she didn't have to use the joystick. Maybe that was it. Oh, what a relief. <laughs> All right, Andy. Uh, how to do at the box office? This is—I know—I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm getting ready for disappointment. Yeah. Well, you know, they had been getting bigger budgets uh, for all the films since Star Trek VI, but the budget finally did drop down for this one. Uh, Stuart Baird received sixty million from Paramount, or eighty point four million in today's dollars. Still, it was the high, third highest budget when adjusted. Uh, The movie does follow the trend of those before it hitting theaters during the busy holiday time, opening December 13th, 2002, opposite Drumline, The Hot Chick, and Made in Manhattan. What a lineup for that Uh, weekend. Uh, It did open number two at the box office for the opening weekend, barely behind Made in Manhattan. But with The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers opening just five days later, Wednesday, December 18th, it ended up at number three for the week as The Two Towers easily ended up dominating. It was actually the first Star Trek film to not hold the number one slot for its opening weekend, which I guess you could say was a sure sign of the film's, uh, not necessarily its quality anymore, but I would have said that at the time. Now I feel like maybe it was just, you know, a busy time at the box office. I don't know. Or just maybe people weren't really excited about another Star Trek uh, Next Generation movie. Anyway, just one week in the top 10, it quickly fell out after that and out of the top 20 after five weeks. Uh, the film went on to make $43.2 million domestically and $24 million internationally for a total in today's dollars of $90.2 million. That gave the film an adjusted profit per finished minute of 84477 the lowest of the franchise thus far. And no surprise, the lowest of the franchise, period. In fact, this film also comes in last place when you look at the profit-to-cost ratios, when you look at the gross, and when you look at the adjusted gross. It was barely a financial success, but performed so poorly that the studio was concerned audiences had franchise fatigue. They quickly dumped the idea of a sequel that Logan and Spiner had been developing that would wrap up the film's stories for the Next Generation team. And that was it, unfortunately, for quite a while. That's a disappointment. I think I would have liked that, especially after watching this one again. I think I would have, too. Uh, this, it, it, what are your closing thoughts here as we talk, as we wrap up our next generation, uh, 
series, mini series inside our Star Trek series. Uh, what what do you what are you thinking about the Next Generation crew? You know, it's funny. I really remembered enjoying the Next Generation TV show quite a bit. But if this uh, if these four films are a good representation of kind of what the 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 balance of of tones was on the show. I don't know how much I want to go back and revisit the show. I feel like I may not like it as much as I remember liking it. Um, I struggled a lot with the balance of tone in this uh, series of films, these four, as more so than I did the previous six. Um, it doesn't mean I didn't have a good time watching them, but it was more of a frustrating experience. That being said, I'm really glad that I revisited Nemesis because I did enjoy it quite a bit. And I just, I didn't really remember that. I always remembered just really hating this one. So it was nice to see that. I wonder why that is, Andy. I really do, because I think that this movie is so often like lampooned as uh insurrection part two it's just another big tv show this feels nothing like an episode of the show to me it feels like it's a much grander scale the sets the lights the texture everything about it feels cinematic to me and i don't understand why this one is so often lumped in with insurrection which is which i agree it feels more like a tv show i like an episode of the show i get it I think it's unfair. Well, I will say the story itself, like like the scope of the story, like the the way it looks and everything feels pretty big, but the scope of it feels, I, I did notice that it did feel small when you look at it compared to like our next film. Now, granted, that's 2002 versus 2009. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, quite a difference in, in the filmmaking styles and the storytelling styles between those years. But I was like, okay, so we've got, you know, they've got one, they go to one planet and then they go to Romulus and everything happens in front of Romulus except for the final fight, which is kind of as they're leaving Romulus. It's like, there's not, there's not a lot of movement in the story. And that could have been part of the reason people say it feels like a TV show is it just feels very like we're stuck at this planet the whole time. Um, We're not jumping around all across the, uh, the galaxy. I, I still think it's unfair. The the end uh, of I'm not this movie, it's not, yeah. I, you know, the the clash of these two films, and and there are two things we haven't talked about, which we probably should. One is the clash of these two films, which I find uh, at once frustrating and beautiful. Uh, it, it's frustrating because you know it, it feels like these ships, which can otherwise sort of turn on a dime, have real trouble when they're nose to nose, and and that that was kind of frustrating to me. I I, I don't know how they are capable of running into one another. I, I always think that somebody should be able to turn. It, it's the equivalent of the great scene at the end of Fish Called Wanda when Ken <laughs> is <laughs> at right the wheel the of the steamroller. Ken's coming <laughs> to k- k- kill me. Uh, that, that's what it felt. It feels like to me sometimes, and so I, I have trouble uh, with that particular sequence. But the payoff is really quite grand. Uh, and the death of Data, um, which I... I have trouble with because you could lump this in with the, uh, you know, the, the thing I was so frustrated with in Kingsman, you know, the, the fact that you can bring characters back with magic. So how do you trust that you can in fact ever lose somebody that's going to give you any sort of emotional heartbreak? Uh, and data would have been one of great emotional heartbreak, but he's a computer. Like they've set that up for the last, you know, 10, 12 years, that this should be something that that we should expect, and and so it it gets a, a pass uh, for me on that too. Um, 
Well, and so. the franchise already built, you know, we already had Spock die and come back. And yeah, it's like, right. well, okay, so this franchise is not going to be afraid of bringing characters back. So. Yeah, right. So it's it's okay. Um, but uh, overall, I, I really enjoyed it. And in fact, I was surprised that, uh, you know, in terms of my overall flick chart ranking of all the Star Trek movies we've talked about so far, not including those that we haven't talked about. Obviously, Undiscovered Country is still my my very favorite at number 11. Wrath of Khan is number 17 on my all-time favorite uh, list of films that I've ranked. Uh, and Nemesis comes in uh, for me as number three. I won't tell you where, uh, but it comes in for me at number three now, and I was very surprised about that. So um, I, I think it's probably time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and, and let's see, is it going to come up as number three for you? I guess we'll find out. Wah, wah, wah. All right. First up, we have Star Trek Nemesis or Fat City. Oh, Nemesis. I will say Nemesis. Next up, Star Trek Nemesis or Seven Samurai. I have oh, to go with Seven Samurai here. This is a tough one. I've seen Seven Samurai enough. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and I'm, I'm feeling so sort of relieved uh, at this viewing of this movie. Oh, I, I hear you there, but I still yeah. have to say Seven Samurai. All right, I'll give you Seven Samurai. I know what that does. And I didn't, Seven Samurai doesn't come up for me. I don't know. <laughs> I know it's hard when things yeah. like that happen. Next up, Star Trek Nemesis or Force Majeure? Star Trek Nemesis. I'll say Nemesis also. Star Trek Nemesis or The Wizard of Oz? I've got to say Wizard of Oz. I, I'm, uh, okay, I'll say Wizard of Oz. <laughs> I was going to pick a fight, but I can't. I can't. In good I was say, what? Star Trek Nemesis or An American Werewolf in London? Star Trek Nemesis. I'm going with an American werewolf in London. Let's do it. All right. All right. One, One two, two, three. Scissors. scissors paper. Scissors. Scissors. Paper. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying the pattern. I know. I know. Work. That's good. That's good. <laughs> you, you figured me out. <laughs> Star Trek Nemesis or Das Boot? I will say Das Boot. Das Boot. God, we've talked about a lot of great movies, and my flick chart is full of a lot of crappy ones. (laughs) (laughs) Star Trek Nemesis or Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross? Oh, Glenn Glenn Gary. Gary. Star Trek Nemesis or The Big Lebowski? Oh, Nemesis, hands down. I'm going to say Lebowski. With a bullet. (laughs) With a bowling ball. (laughs) With a bowling ball. Here we go. All right, ready? One, One, two, two, three. three. Scissors. Oh, that you know what? Defiantly, that is as it should be. That is not as it I'm should doing. Be. I'm doing you a favor, you and your oh, your your children. I'm protecting <laughs> your reputation. All right. Well, there we have it. Star Trek Nemesis is 108 on our flick chart. So where is it for you? It came in at uh, it was it was higher. It was it was around 1800 out of 38 uh, 39. So is is close to the middle. After I re-ranked it, it went up to 1412. So it's about 36.8%. So I was surprised, actually. It was as high as it was. I'm really surprised. And I, I clearly, it would have performed differently had it run into any uh, number of the movies we just ranked it against. It did not. <laughs> and so it ended up at <laughs> 62 on my flick chart. Uh, and that puts it up at uh, 94 out of 100. I should be rating this a four and a half star film. On letterbox.com slash the next reel. What do you think? That's crazy. 
I haven't committed that's, to it yet. That's high for me. I it on, uh, my initial rank without having watched it on Letterboxd was uh, I think three and a half stars. Yeah, uh, without having watched it, so like that's what you're going to go into. That was your memory of it. It was a three and a half star film. Yes. No, and that's what it has always been since I started rank. You know, I when I started ranking, I just started going through all my films. I thought, oh, I think Nemesis is probably a three and a half because I had never ranked it, and it's been years since I watched it. I told you I liked it already. Yeah. So I, I know I'm torn between three and three and a half. I think I'm landing on the three and a half though after our conversation because I just I, I really ended up liking this film so much more. It was such. A pleasant surprise. I actually, uh, you know, I got the feels with this one. So I had a great time. And this is definitely one that I would watch again. I Probably more than any of the other ones. I, I do think that after this conversation, this probably is my favorite of the Next Generation films. So I think so too. I never would have seen that coming. Nope. <laughs> nope. I can totally, I, I absolutely relate. I think that this was... This is a fine film, and it is a great, great way for the next-gen cast to go out. Which which is frustrating because it wasn't a success. It's a shame that they don't have that to, to, um, to go out with. But I do think that they should be proud of the film that they did end up getting. I think so, too. And, man, that's a cool outfit. Just looking at yes, it, it on Letterboxd, I want that outfit. It reminds me yeah, of, the, of the, like, uh, what's his name? Pinhead from... Uh, Hellraiser. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, for me, I'm gonna I'm gonna goose your three and a half and go with a four and a heart. Yeah, mine's three and a half and a heart. So, yeah. all right. Look at that. Went from my least favorite to a three and a half. Nice. Well done, Stuart Baird. <laughs> uh, well, I'm gonna say John Logan. <laughs> well, well done, John, John Logan. Logan. Well done, John Logan. Uh, let's. Uh, where, where do we go from here? We're, we've wrapped up our next gen, and and we're in the home stretch. Yeah, we're getting into the reboot territory. We're going to be jumping into uh, the 2009 uh, reboot with J.J. Abrams' Star Trek. It's like a breath of fresh air, isn't it? I haven't seen this one in a number of years, and uh, I'm quite looking forward to revisiting it. Oh, me too. And we we get to jump in with the Romulans again. I know, right? It's very exciting. Mm, They're so cranky. (laughs) Indeed they are. So glad we were able to revisit this, Andy, uh, because, as you know, when the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always do it. Oh, Amazon's chock full of little prezzies uh, this time around. <laughs> oh, as sometimes it is wont to be. <laughs> we're we're both uh, hitting one stars, right? We you, are. You, yeah. Do, what do you think? Do you want me to go first? You want to go first? Go for it. You want me to go? Mine is uh, it. It's kind of a. Uh, this is a shopping channel. This is the the home shopping network review. This This is a great film with one terrible mistake. As a Star Trek fan, I consider this to be both the best and worst Star Trek film. This film has excellent special effects and is well written, but has the worst mistake ever made in the history of the franchise. The ending of the film was very disappointing, and I would have given this movie five stars if this one plot element was not in this movie. I cannot reveal what that is, 
because review guidelines do not permit spoilers. Oh. What? What? (laughs) (laughs) Inquiring minds, Andy, I want to know. I don't think other people have followed that rule. (laughs) The history of the franchise, Andy. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. <laughs> so funny. Well, I I think I'm going to go with the uh, the one from William. I, I was torn, but I, I think I'm actually going to do the one by William. <laughs> um, who simply says, bummer, I already had it. <laughs> this is a one star. If, right? One star. If, oh. if I would have realized that being a, quote, Trekkie, I already had this movie. It was part of a set, a box set titled Star Trek The Next Generation Motion Picture Collection. I would never have purchased it again. Whomever created this movie made all the hype about it being new when it, in fact, was old. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear sweet William. Oh, my, my. Oh, hand hand daddy the keyboard. (laughs) Thanks, Amazon. <laughs>